This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody, it's Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I am here with my old friend, Jim Miller. Uh, I have known Jim since 2008, uh, Singularity Summit in Santa Clara, and so that was a long time ago. Some of you listeners were probably, actually, I know you were in elementary school. Uh, You probably have very vague memories of that period. Um, I was a much younger man. And uh, I think so were you, Jim. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if you were like frozen, put time dilation. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I wanted to catch up uh, because uh, you wrote a book that year, um, Singularity Rising. Uh, you are an economist at Smith College, and you basically wrote about the implications of the singularity. Uh, that's not a, you know, that particular word is not used as much as you would think. Um, for some reason, um, you know, just fashion, semantic, whatever. But this was a time when Ray Kurzweil was very popular, um, you know, and he had this hypothesis of the coming singularity, which should happen in less than 10 years, I think, according to his predictions at the time. Um, and, you know, the singularity was driven by artificial general intelligence that was engaged in an intelligence explosion. The intelligence explosion would result in, you know, like a very, very fast iterated evolution and, you know, the whole world would transform in various ways, perhaps for the good, perhaps for the bad. At that time, um, Singularity Institute, um, which later became, I think, MIRI, a Machine Learning Institute or whatever, Machine, you know, Institute, whatever, MIRI. Um, you know, Eliezer Yudkowsky was kind of the centerpiece of that at that time. And they were trying to create friendly AI. Uh, at some point, Eliezer gave up. Um, I left the Bay Area by the time I think he changed his mind. And now he is the doom monger, um, so to speak, of, uh, you know, this moment in time. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk to you, Jim. Um, also, I should say, you are something of a podcaster yourself uh, with uh, Future Strategist, which I have been on Future Strategist. Future Strategist is actually cited in my Wikipedia entry. I don't know if you know that. Well, because I, I've never talked at length. Uh, that was the longest that I've ever talked about what happened with the New York Times. So uh, that was why it's cited on the Wikipedia entry, because I haven't really told people beyond that what's ever happened. Uh, I don't know. It's just it's past is the past. I don't really care. Um, and it's not something I wish to revisit. So um, I guess that you will um, be cited there for posterity, assuming that I remain notable enough not to get deleted. (laughs) Um, But in any case, um, you have this book, Singularity Rising, and uh, I have a copy of it uh, because you sent it to me in 2009. I did read it. Um, At the time, uh, I was not 
really prepared or um, equipped to think through some of the implications. Uh, you know, I was interested in these ideas and of the impact of artificial intelligence, but it really hadn't sunk into me what it could what it could do. And look, you know, in my defense, it was 2008. Uh, I don't know if you guys out there remember 2008, but back then Google was a dynamic company. Microsoft was dead in the water. Um, you know, everything was, you know, Web 2.0 was still exciting, fresh. Uh, smartphone, the iPhone had, I think, was just about to come out or had come out. Um, yeah, I think it had just come out. And, um, you know, Steve Jobs thought that it was going to be basically uh, an iPhone iPod slash phone. He thought it was going to be mostly a music player slash a phone. Um, obviously transformed into something totally different, something totally transformative. Um, you know, it's a supercomputer in your pocket. Um, the App Store really transformed the way we live today. Um, so, you know, it was a different time. It was an optimistic time. Uh, it was around the time, actually, of the financial crisis, although um, I think in the spring or early summer, it really the Lehman Brothers event had not occurred. Uh, so when you did your lecture at the Singular Institute, um, and uh, there was still some optimism in the air, uh, you know, I remember um, I had beers with Werner Vinge, which like you know it's kind of a fanboy moment. He was there, uh, you know, all these like you know it's like um, you know they say never never meet your heroes, and I don't really think I met met Werner Vinge and you know those guys, those you know science fiction authors and futurists, computer scientists, but. Um, you know, I drank beer with them. Uh, Peter Thiel did not hang around, but he was there. Um, you know, just it was a whole scene then, you know, um, and it's a whole scene now. Um, but I'm not part of that scene. Um, you know, I, I live in Austin, uh, which is a little different than the Bay Area, obviously. Um, but anyway, um, I went back, read uh, some parts of Singularity Rising. Now, um, there's three parts of Singularity Rising, Jim. Uh Part one, Rise of the Robots. Part two, we become smarter even without AI. Now, part two, I think uh, you definitely were curious about my feedback on some of that. And I don't remember the details of our conversations, but I think we had some follow-ups on that. And part three are the economic implications. And this is where I think um, I had a really hard time following some of this at the time because, uh, I mean, I'm not an economist. Uh, and, um, you know, it just seemed really, really far out to think about AI's implication for economics. It seemed a little academic. Wait, you are an academic. <laughs> So, you know, what is now what was academic is now concrete. Um, we actually are. I mean, you know, it's in The New York Times. It's in The Atlantic. Like, what is AI going to do to jobs? And, you know, and this is this is the stage where I have talked so long that someone is going to leave a review on Apple Podcasts that Razib does not let the guests speak. <laughs> and so I'm going to let the guests speak. Uh, um yeah, how I mean, you know, before we got on, you said like, you know, you're like obsessed with this moment right now. Um, you know, obviously you were thinking about this stuff before this stuff was a thing. Um, when it was like a little glimmer in people's eyes. Well, what convinced me was uh, Ray Kurzweil. He he wrote the book on the singularity is near, and basically that, you know, because of Moore's law, we keep getting this doubling in computing ability. And eventually it's gonna take it past the point of human level of intelligence. And it just occurred to me that, you know, everything we have comes from the human brain. We get all of our innovation, everything we've done comes from human intelligence. We're going to get AIs that are smarter than humans, but they'll only be around our level briefly because if you keep having this doubling power, you, know, you keep having this exponential growth in computing hardware, then once AIs get a little bit smarter than us, it might just be a few years before they're as above us as we are from chimpanzees or even ants. 
And that's just going to change everything. And I thought then, and I certainly think now that's probably going to happen in my natural lifetime. Um, an economic implication of this is obviously once we have computer superintelligences, everything changes. But even before then, expectations matter an enormous amount for the economy. So someone going to college now, you're spending, what, $80,000 a year for four years in order to get a better lifetime income? Well, how does that play out if you think, wait a minute, AIs are going to make me obsolete in 10 years? Is it going to be a good investment? Or even further back, right? We, we both have kids and, you know, your kid's in high school and doesn't want to do something like you have to do it. Why? It's stupid. Yeah, it's stupid. But look, you got to get an A to get in your good college, to get a good job, to have a good life. But if I had a kid in high school now, I'd be like, you know, by the time you finish college, you're not going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Or if you are, it'll only be for two or three years. So it's it, it really changed. Expectations of having super intelligence are going to change everything. All right, so let's 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 um you know as my uh, co-founder Taylor Capito would say, uh, let's level set. Um, uh, so in two thousand eight, um, from what I remember, and you know I did not read the whole Singularity. Uh, you know I I read your book, but um the Kurzweil book, the Singularity. What was his What was his book at that time that was big? The Singularity is near. Yeah, Singularity is near. My understanding was that he was pretty convinced it was going to be happening by about twenty thirty. That's what I remember. Well, it depends how you get. He, 2045 was his date, I think, for when it just gets crazy. 2030, for, I think, for when that was a when we have a most intelligence is AI. He's been remarkably right. Uh, it's That's just, I mean, if, if this, there's a good chance a thousand years from now, Kurzweil will be one of the most important scholars in all of his human history if we survive. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, let me let me ask you. Um, we haven't talked about these topics. You know, we've been in touch over the years on various other topics. But we haven't talked about these topics. Um, what has been your perception? Okay, this is my perception of AI. Um, so, and then when you can talk, tell tell me yours because you are the guest, and that's what they want. You know, they want to hear from you, uh, not me. But uh, um, so it seems like it was kind of occurring fitfully, um, gradually, but. Um, the AI explosion really began with, I think, uh, Transformers, LLMs in the last like four or five years, and uh, you know, GPT three to four, you know, um, is is a massive, massive difference. Now, um, one thing that I will say though is, from a startup perspective, from a you know, a product perspective, um, the cultural impact of artificial intelligence of open AI has been through productization, uh, through user experience. They, they attached a general chat, you know, front end onto what is really an a API. Um, the API was there and that's what really transformed it. So the underlying technology has been around for a couple of years now. And now um, the inter in the interaction, adding even further training set, um, of humans asking questions and responding to the questions has been improving it further. And so the last couple of years have been crazy. The last year has been crazy. Um, and uh, it seems like it's a discontinuity event. Um, but, you know, some people are saying it's already leveling off um, and maybe it's going to change in a stepwise fashion, even if the trend line is towards singularity, as you would say. Uh, 
that is not a continuous, gradual, exponential growth, but really a stepwise growth that's fitted to an exponential um, is, is, I guess, what I'm saying. That's my perception. I'm not keeping track of it as closely as you. So tell me what tell me what you've what you've thought since 2008. So yeah, my perception. I mean, yeah, the the GPT that was a surprise. Um, the version 3.5 was maybe as good as a high school student. And now what we have, the paid version is maybe as good as an undergraduate. You know, it makes mistakes, but of course, so do undergraduates, but it is capable of reasoning. Um, and yeah, we don't know what the future is going to bring. Maybe we level off, but I think it's probably going to keep going. Uh, and one of the big reasons is it's been so financially successful. There's such an enormous amount of money that's going into this. Um, experienced machine learning researchers are getting $400,000 a year. Um, there's an, you know, the enormous amounts going into computer chip production. All like, the smartest people in the world seem to be getting together to push this technology. So we should be far more, we should think it's far more likely we'll have significant advances than we did a while ago. I mean, technology is in something like, as you know, it's not like given to us by the gods. It's something we work for. And the greater in, the, the greater incentives we have to achieve it, the more money, the more resources that are going into it, the more likely we're going to make progress. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in, in, in terms of hardware, I've read maybe in 10 years, our hardware might be a million times more powerful. Yeah. That's, you know, well, that's I, even without changing in algorithms. I want I want to go back to this this, this power and, and all these changes, but let me um I just asked GPT four um who James D Miller is, and so uh, there are three of them. I will not refer to the steamboat captain or the orthopedic surgeon. Um, so the economics professor is a contemporary figure known as a professor of economics at Smith College. He is also the author of Singularity Rising and hosts the Future Strategist podcast. His work often explores complex and futuristic topics, including artificial intelligence and the impact of technology and society in various aspects of economics. That's pretty much 100% correct, right? Yeah, it is. Okay, no error on you. Um, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to check on me now. Um, it's been a little while. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, ba uh, so um, I will say OpenAI is, is, uh, uh, is nicer. Um, to me than uh, Bard because Bard is woke. <laughs> I'm not joking. Um, okay, there's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot here, but I'm gonna go with the first paragraph. Um, let's see what you think of it, okay? Because um, like, I mean, you follow my work. I mean, you can judge. You are a human. You are a organic general intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Um, Razib Khan is a multifaceted individual with significant contributions to the fields of genetics and science communication. He co-founded a blog called Gene Expression in 2002, which delves into technical and social issues in genetics. This blog has been a platform for his writings on various controversial topics such as race, gender, and intelligence. His publications, which have garnered attention from popular science writers, cover diverse topics such as the migration of Southeast Asian civilizations, Jewish migrations, family genetics, and consumer genetics. What do yeah, you think? I mean, I, I, it sounds pretty good. Okay, so this is a this is a very diligent undergrad, yeah, very diligent undergrad, not not hallucinating at all there. Um, and then I'm just like looking at the other paragraphs. It looks pretty much correct. A lot of this looks like it's part like City Journal. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Yeah, this is good. This is, um, yeah, this is really good. It's it's um, no hallucinations at all. Um, okay, so uh, I I want to talk about something 
that you were saying, you know, we were talking about economics and growth and, and technological change. A lot of scientists are not natural scientists. A lot of physical scientists, um, uh, they do not um, really understand how innovation occurs, endogenous growth theory, these sorts of things. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, peak oil. You know, if you talk to if you talk to geo- not geologists, but um, I don't know if you talk to like a biologist. A lot of people like you know back in like the nineteen nineties, early nineties when I was a kid. You know, I remember like we were reading stuff in Scientific American, like we're going to run out of oil in 15 years, you know? And so, what, you know, this is my understanding of what, what, um, what scientists do not understand. As oil becomes more scarce, it's still valuable. There is an incentive to figure out ways to extract it um, more effectively. So, you know, for example, fracking, shale oil, all these things, um, those were not a thing when I was a kid. Uh, so we're getting better and better and more effective at extracting resources. And, you know, if you guys are really interested in this particular topic of energy extraction, just read Michael Mutakrishna's book. I did a podcast in the fall about it. Um, you know, energy extraction is a big thing, efficiency and, and all this stuff. Okay. Um, so ec- economics is basically telling us that the landscape uh, that we're operating on is transforming. Like it transforms based on our input. Whereas like if you're a physical scientist, um, if you're a physicist, in general, you think of fixed parameters and laws, right? The universal laws do not change over time. If you're a biologist, evolution does happen, but that happens over a very long time scale. And so generally you take like ecological and evolutionary, you know, like, okay, this is what the ecosystem is like, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Economists, though, things are changing within our own lives, right? So the intensive stru- incentive structure changed. So, for example, solar technology is extremely cheap now. Yes, there were some subsidies that were introduced earlier, but now it's driven by its own demand, um, you know, all across the world. Things like gas taxes and other pushes and pulls are occurring. Battery technology is getting better. That's really helping uh, solar technology. Um, so, you know, I mentioned transformers, LLMs. Those were not a thing in 2008. Um, But you were predicting, you, Kurzweil, other people were anticipating um, this exponential growth, right? And that's because innovation just, it happens, like this is just a fact of human history, inductively, right? There's two reasons to think that in terms of AI, AI is different. The big one is the human brain exists. And unless you think there's something magical, we have a soul that powers it, we know it's possible to get John von Neumann level of intelligence, but I don't know it's possible. Maybe there's no practical way of, of riding a spaceship to Pluto or something, because that we don't know that exists. But we do know John von Neumann was real. And we know that he his brain fit in this really small container, his head. It used only a small amount of power. There was only one of him. So it seems almost certain that it should be possible to create billions of von Neumanns. And that's Va- just... von Neumann machines. Mar- yes. von no- <laughs> and the other reason the AI's, AI tech is different is because of Moore's law. We have this steady increase in computing power, and it increases exponentially. It, the amount of computing power you can buy per dollar might double every two years or so. Yeah. Re- re- while for the listener, re- for the listener, restate Moore's law, and um, I haven't kept track of it. Tell me how it's going. Um, well, Moore's law was ri- originally uh, stated in terms of like size, like you, you, you keep, you can put more and more transistors on a chip. But as an economist, I think the relevant point is 
how much computing power can you buy per dollar? And that that's continuing to double. I don't know exactly, but around every two years, almost certainly for the next 10 years, that's going to continue unless, you know, maybe Taiwan is all blown up in a war with China. So we know von Neumann exists. We keep getting better and better hardware. It seems really likely that we're going to figure it out and put it together, especially then when you add how profitable it would be. I mean, if you could have yeah. von Neumann on a computer, that, that's worth a lot of money. That's worth trillions. Yeah. Um, let me, um, you know, compute. this is like talking about astronomical scale distances, how, how powerful comp computing has gotten over the last couple of decades. You have to use analogies and illustrations because you can't get a concrete grasp of it. So let me just tell the, the listeners a story. Um, when I was in graduate school in the early teens, one of my professors said, you know, the 1990s, there were arguments about phylogenetic methods um, and the maximum likelihood method of statistical framework. Um, they just assumed they would never have enough computational power to do it. And by the early teens, most people uh, in phylogenetics were shifting away from maximum likelihood methods to Bayesian methods, which means that they had so much statistical. So Bayesian, so maximum likelihood methods is basically like, you know, um, you have a model and you get like the, the best parameters, you know, that maximize the likelihood of that model. Uh, Bayesian methods, um, basically have all of the max likelihood models okay so it's like even the parameters of the, mo the, the model the fixed you know parameters of the model are, are varying around so what i'm getting at there is you know 15 years earlier this academic thought that the um simpler statistical framework was not possible with computation and now the much more intense framework was possible with computation like they had moved past max likelihood, you know, um, and so this is what's going on in our world uh, with the power of computation. You know, we used to have, you know, um, the uh, the the hertz, like right, like the megahertz or whatever, uh, with the on the um, on the Intel chips, and now like it's about cores and now it's about other things. It's it's hard to like just like read on the label and figure it out. But the computers that we have today are much faster, much more powerful. And also, there are many fewer things. I mean, I don't use Windows, but I don't hear about blue screen of death. Um, you know, the software has even gotten better. Uh, it's improved over the last couple of decades. Um, and people people just take for granted a level of robustness that would have been amazing in the 1990s when we were really starting to understand the potential of computation. Um, but um, so this is both hardware and, and, and software. Um, can you talk about in your book, um, you know, the rise of, so the rise of robots in part one, I'm just like, I'm looking at the title at the chapter headings again, you have a part about hardware, part about software. Uh, can you just talk about like what you've seen with the change in both hardware and software? Moore's law is kind of addressing the hardware. Um, uh, sure. No, you're right. I mean, computers have gotten much more reliable and it's likely that GPT is going to allow us to interact with all of our hardware. I'm in natural language. So I wouldn't probably won't be that long for the next television as you can talk to it and say, you know, I don't like this particular feature. Can you automatically mute these commercials with Cheerios in it? Because, you know, I don't want to have to deal with that anymore or something. So uh, it's it's changed. I mean, we, we have VR has been the one area of technology, I would say, where things have not progressed as much as you would expect. So those have been kind of dis disappointments. 
Um, a big area has probably been the military, where if you were um, a, a lot of our military technology has sort of AI in it and is, is using computing. And this is probably a big part of the reason why the US is still the dominant um, player, probably why China hasn't taken Taiwan yet, because our military hardware and sophistication would probably mean they, they would likely lose if they did. Well, okay. When you wrote uh, Singularity Rising, uh, drones were wonder weapons. Yeah. Now I could probably purchase some type of scary drone. Um, you know, I posted something on social media today on, on uh, X, uh, uh, a video of a drone chasing a man around a, uh, a tank and killing him. And, uh, you yeah. know, I just and I put in bold letters. Uh, I put in bold Hunter Seeker. Do you know what that's a reference to? Oh, Dune. Yes. Yes. Most people didn't get it. But like Hunter Seeker. So Hunter Seeker, like if you watch the recent movie, it was in there. It was in the original movie or it was in the movie in the 84 too. But Hunter Seekers are little automated devices. They have some sort of like, uh, they're somewhat automated, but they're not actually fully, com- they're, I mean, because like in Dune, you can't have computers. Uh, they're somewhat guided. Um, they're guided by someone. But in any case, um, the uh, apocalyptic scenario in Dune that the God Emperor, I'm spoiling it for people out there, but you know most people are not as nerdy to like read the whole series. Um, the God Emperor, what he's trying to avoid is a scenario where um, the Ixians, who do have some some, some types of computation in violation of uh, of the ban um, imposed by the Butlerian Jihad, um, they integrate hunter seekers with uh, artif- uh, artificial intelligence, and the hunter seekers um, spread across the universe. Uh, as replicating von Neumann machines, and they kill everybody. Okay, and so I just was like, "Oh, <laughs> it's starting to get scary." Yeah, no, it is. It is scary. I mean, I I don't think that particular scenario is likely to get us, but I do think this is probably going to be our end. Um, I think this is leading in a very, very, very dark places. Yeah, so you know, I, you know, I want to, I want to talk about this um, because, um, you know, unfriendly AI terrifies me. That's one of your chapters, and you know, the whole scene, um, this futurist scene, this transhumanist scene, the singularitarian scene um, in the Bay Area in the late two thousands, uh, there was a lot of worry about um, unfriendly AI, and uh, obviously, Eliezer, um, you know, had con- has convinced. Um, has convinced Elon Musk, uh, you know, our, our, our um, aspiring God Emperor, <laughs> um, about the um, existential threat of artificial general intelligence. And, um, you know, I can tell my subscribers, you know, he lives in Austin. I know people who know him. I know people who have had conversations with him. I've never conversed with him. I have been in the same room at the same parties as him. Um, this man is obsessed with artificial general intelligence and everything that he is doing is actually ultimately rooted in the fear of artificial general intelligence going to Mars, you know um, what he's funding uh, in relation to AI um, his interest in pronatalism. Uh, he wants mentats, you know, he wants mentats that can defeat the, the thinking machines. So, um, you are one of those people. Now, recently, there's been a counterforce. Um, a lot of computer scientists are in this, in this camp. Um, and then there's like you know young people online that add it as if it's their pronoun. EAC, effective accelerationist, which is 
not really a coherently systematic frame of thought, but it's reactionary to your older school of thought. Um, that I figure those are the people who want to kill Genghis Khan's ambassador because that'll motivate us to develop a super weapon before the Khan's armies come and wipe us out. Even though right now we have no idea what kind of super weapon we could possibly use to defeat it. But, you know, well, actually, no, I know the answer.